on today's show. You cannot deny the fact that the cross is certainly the most well-known religious symbol, but perhaps it's the most most well-known symbol of anything, really. And to the ancient, it represents a gruesome method of execution, a slow, painful death. It, It is death by torture. And yet it has come to be seen as a symbol of God's presence in the darkness of, you know, <laughs> like hope in painful suffering and, and, and redemption. And it's come to be this sort of spiritual idea. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, joined again in the studio by Scott Dunford, pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. Scott, I'm very excited to dive into today's episode, but before we dive into that, first, if you've ever been blessed by this show, or maybe it's your first time, but you end up having a positive experience with us, go ahead and subscribe and also share the show But the best way that you can help the show to grow is always by leaving a positive rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we also want to let you know that if you weren't already aware, we're doing this in video form as well now. If we seem a little bit awkward, it's because, well, now we're not looking at each other on a screen. We're looking directly into the lens, pretending we can see each other because that's what professional podcasters do. And you can follow us on ABWE's YouTube channel as well, since the Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. All right, with some of that housekeeping stuff out of the way, Scott, you're very excited about today's guest. You first put this on my radar. I'm excited about it as well. Uh, I had a conversation just the other week about how some of the points that this guest is making, I think, aren't made enough in our apologetic conversation. So can you set this up for us? Who are we talking to today? Yeah, so we're excited to welcome someone who I met a few years ago talking about issues going on in Western China with the Uyghurs. Uh, But Glenn Scrivener is joining us. He's the author of a new book that I think everyone needs to rush out and read. It's probably been my favorite book that I've read this year and certainly the book that I've recommended others read the most here in 2022 called The Air We Breathe. He's an ordained minister. He's the director of Speak Life, which is very popular in Christian circles, especially in England, Australia. I've actually had friends from those places reach out to me about Glenn, so check that out as well. Um, He loves to write about uh, issues related to evangelism and creative communication, especially in non-Christian settings. And so I'm really excited to have Glenn on the show. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, Glenn. Uh, Thanks for having me, Scott, and thanks for having me, Alex. Glenn, I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and I I made the point, I I think one of the things that we underemphasize in our apologetics, and at the time of this airing of this show, we recently had Josh McDowell on. And so we've, we've gone across the spectrum of different types of apologists on the show, from evidential to very presuppositional to classical. One thing that we don't get into much when we're arguing for the defense of the faith is the history of the growth of Christianity itself and the fruit of the fact that Christ's spirit is with us doing his work and cultures have been changed. We'll get into some of that. And I think it even comes down to the title of the book. So explain to us why the book is called The Air We Breathe. I grew up in Australia and uh, I guess I never really understood how sweetly Australian air smells until I left Australia and went to England when I was 15. And then coming back into Sydney, almost the first thing you notice is how sweet the air smells because it's all mentholated by eucalyptus trees, millions and millions of eucalyptus trees. And it's, it's basically like a cough mixture kind of carried upon the breeze. And, but you would never understand it. I, I never 
recognized just how sweetly the air smelt until I was taken out of that atmosphere into mm. a different atmosphere. And really what I'm doing with the book is saying that the atmosphere that seems natural and obvious and universal to us, the atmosphere that is the air we breathe, has to do with moral intuitions and assumptions and gut instincts that we have about the way that life operates. And we tend to think that the sort of society that we are in and the kind of moral universe that we inhabit is obvious and natural and universal. And yet it is nothing of the sorts. The sorts of values that we tend to hold, especially in the West, have come to us very distinctively through the Jesus Revolution, otherwise known as Christianity. And kind of the book uh, takes us out of our ordinary assumptions about moral intuitions, takes us back to pre-Christian cultures, shows us some of the, the Greco-Roman world, and kind of buries our nose in an atmosphere that is very unfamiliar to us and does, I guess, a kind of a compare and contrast. And it says, look, on, on a whole range of values, I identify seven, the air we breathe is very different to non-Christian and pre-Christian cultures. So we happen to believe in equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Mm. And for the rest of the world, that is largely a, a kind of a novelty or bizarre kind of, these are bizarre notions. And so what I want to do in the book is sort of take us out of the atmosphere that we're in, help us to breathe some different air, and then bring us back to our atmosphere and just say, where did these ideas come from? And I think the conclusion of a whole bunch of historians, whether Christian or not, is that it is Jesus Christ and his revolution uh, that has really, that really infuses the air that we breathe. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited to unpack that more as we go down the road in this interview, because there's so many of those questions that I think are are really pressing in today's culture. But I couldn't help but reading it. And as I'm reading it, some of the other concerns and questions coming through my mind were specifically questions that are kind of lobbed toward Western missionaries of saying, well, you know, this is just Western cultural imperialism, and you're just impressing your values, which are so, you know, you think are so perfect onto the rest of the world. And, and yet, you know, I've lived in Asia. I've seen the fact that there are totally different values in other places that are not as influenced by Christianity. Uh, for instance, you know, I, I went into th- certain issues naively thinking that that everyone thinks it's a good idea to help people less fortunate than you, and only to realize, actually, no, there's a whole set of values that says it is not good to help those less fortunate than you, that giving to the poor actually is just robbing from your children. And so, you know, that was a shock to me. So Mm -hmm. how would you say this would be relevant or is it relevant to those living outside of historical Christendom? Or is this a book that you would say this is primarily for people living in the West? I hope it would be really important for missionaries to do some basic bias training and to to figure out that you come from a, a specific location in time and space and that the ideas that you have are weird Joseph Henrik is an evolutionary psychologist uh, at Harvard, and he came up with the acronym WEIRD to describe what Westerners are like. And if you come from the Anglosphere, as I do, then you are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, W-E-I-R-D. And this is not the way that the rest of the world thinks about things. And while you might prize equality, compassion, consent, and enlightenment, and science, and freedom, and progress, while you might think that these are really obvious and natural things... 
if you're going to interact with someone cross-culturally, it would be really important, I think, for you to, to recognize you're coming from a weird place hmm. and not to, not to expect agreement on those matters necessarily. And so, yeah, I, I would offer this in a cross-cultural setting as kind of bias training so that we can all figure out how weird we really are. Mm-hmm. Well, we like to keep it here weird on the missions. Oh, podcast. yeah, we're good <laughs> on that. It's very good. And uh, but w- one of the lines that you use that that I love, and I see where you're going with this. I would put this on a bumper sticker, but I want to give you a chance to unpack it for our listening and watching audience. Is that you say that Jesus Christ and especially his gruesome death towers over Western civilization? What do you mean by that? Because I think it's very easy to skeptically look at Western civilization now. And say, even if there are some of these abstract ideals like progress that you already talked about that might be traceable to the Jesus revolution, it's easy to look at our society now and say, I, I don't see how the cross of Christ is really influencing, influencing much of anything at all right now. So how would you unpack that statement? Goodness. Well, I take a whole book to kind of do that, but you cannot deny the fact that the cross is certainly the most well-known religious symbol, but perhaps it's the most most well-known symbol of anything, really. (laughs) And it represents, to the ancient, it represents a gruesome method of execution, a slow, painful death. It, It is death by torture. And yet it has come to be seen as a symbol of God's presence in the darkness of, you know, <laughs> like hope in painful suffering and, and, and redemption. Mm. And it's come to be this sort of spiritual idea, the cross. And so that is, that has absolutely been the most extraordinary transformation in people's understanding. I was, I was in Rome just before um, Christmas and I went to the Colosseum and as you're going around, you see all these different implements of torture. But then I came across a cross in the midst of the Colosseum. And inst- even though I'd done all the research for the book, even, even though I'd had this on my mind for, for years and years, I saw a cross in the context of the Colosseum. And I thought to myself, oh, the Roman Catholic Church must have put a cross um, <laughs> into the Colosseum uh, to remind us of Christ mm. in some way. <laughs> like, and then I thought, Glenn, you idiot, you <laughs> moron. It's not a religious symbol. It's an implement of torture. And the, the gruesome death that Christ died on that cross was to an ancient Roman an absolute nonsense and a grotesque nonsense at that. The next place I went in Rome after the Colosseum is I, I went to the Palatine Hill Museum, and there you can see the earliest depiction of the cross. And it's a graffiti, and it's scratched into the wall. Basically, there is a figure on a cross who was meant to be Christ, the figure has the head of a donkey, and by the cross there is a worshipper with his hand upraised in veneration, and the caption just says, Alexamenos worships his God, and it's just biting satire, and you just get the real sense that for a Roman to look at a cross is to look at just unremitting pain and torture and shame, sure. and yet for us... It's, it's the most depicted thing in all of art. Mm. I mean, to think of death by torture as a proper subject for art is a pretty subversive idea. To think that the one on that cross is God himself is the most extraordinary thing that humanity has ever entertained. It's the most extraordinary idea humanity has ever entertained. And yet we take it as a commonplace now. So here's my argument that the cross towers over civilization. We can walk through art galleries... And 
in the Western art, you know, wing of the art gallery, we can go past dozens of depictions of death by torture. And our only reaction is to go, ah, sacred art. <laughs> and the, the picture of that man on the cross has transformed the way we see everything such that we now prize victims and mm. we see that there's an inherent dignity to victims yeah. such that equality we've got this idea that instead of there just being this steep hierarchy of being no the one from on high descended right to the gutter to die on that mm. cross and that we are united we are equal at the cross it it has transformed all our values and one of the ways that you can see that it's transformed our values is that we don't notice how weird we are mm. we don't notice right. how weird it is to worship a man on a cross <laughs> yeah and so that, that transformation has woven itself into every aspect of Western civilization, I'd say. I'll let you cut in, Scott, but you're absolutely right. I, I just want to bring up one thing that you said. It's it, to the point where we now prize victim status, even to the point of idolizing it, right? You talk about right now, you know, any identifiable victim group, there's a political agenda that can be caught up in that. And sometimes we kind of attack the superficial, you know, aspects of those arguments. And I think we need to go beneath the surface uh, in our culture in the West in particular and say, hey, why, why in our psyche do we even value the idea of someone being victimized, oppressed, mistreated? Where does that come from? Because if you trace that back, that takes us to Christ. Go ahead, Scott. So many thoughts came to mind. The first thought that came to mind as you start talking about how the, the image of the cross transforms things. I was thinking back to after 9-11 here in New York City, there was you know, some cross beams that formed a cross and it was all over the news. And in fact, now it's sitting in the museum, not as a symbol of the shame of destruction, but it actually people looked at that and said, wow, that's hope. And uh, even non-Christians, you know, saw that in a, in a positive light. Mm. And, and yet yeah. to think of how ridiculous that is mm. as a means of gruesome torture and death, but yet Christianity and the power of the gospel has transformed all of that. It's beautiful. Right. You were bringing tears to my eyes as I was thinking about that that depiction. Yeah. Well, and, and the stories that we tell says that after, after the terror, after the horror, after the worst thing that it is possible to happen, there is hope and yeah. there is, there is something to go beyond that. And, and, and we have that sense in all our storytelling. Let's say, you know, here, here's another example of how the Christ story has woven itself into modern civilization is that we just, we, we know what ought to happen after there's a death like that, there hmm. ought to be a resurrection. Well, who mm -hmm. told you there ought to be a resurrection? You know, I had to take my kids to the, the movies the other day and we, like, we watched Sonic 2, which is not the film that I would have chosen if, uh, if I didn't have a four-year-old <laughs> and a seven-year-old. And yet in this, in this film, let's call it a film, in this film, <laughs> Sonic walks on water. <laughs> he triumphs through sacrifice. <laughs> he rises from the dead to bring victory and there's a happily ever after. And, and just like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, every story that we tell, yeah, is now the Christ story. So for people who say that the Christ story is spent or that the influence of the cross uh, no, no longer holds sway over us, I, I'd invite them to go to the movies. Yeah, that, it, we could go on and on about that. Uh, in the book, you know, check out the books. It goes into a lot of detail, especially on things like slavery, for instance. And I loved how you brought out, you know, the, even how the pagan ancients, they didn't wrestle with slavery at all. Like, of course, they deserve to be slaves. Like, they just they're inferior. They're inferior. And how, even though Christianity has a mixed story, especially in later days uh, with slavery, the whole critique of slavery comes out of the fact of of Christianity and the inherent human dignity that that that's God given that was not possible.
impossible to critique right. before Christianity. So right. I, I, I want to go to that discussion of paganism, right? Uh, that's a hard, hard pivot, but I guess there's a little bit of an introduction. It seems like in the West, and, you know, and I, I'm from northern Wisconsin, a lot of my ancestors, you know, are Scandinavian or German. And, and certainly there's a resurgence, even in my own family, of, of an interest in those kind of things in their history. You know, I've got an uncle that considers himself, you know, a, a Norse pagan, which is absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, you watch these modern depictions, you know, of the shows. And, and I've done a little bit of a research to realize that they're, they're sanitizing all of their religious practices. Right. And yet media is portraying paganism as a positive light and Christianity almost exclusively in a, in a negative light. So how would Christian ideals, you talk about this in your book, have been perceived by those pagan cultures, the surrounding cultures of Jesus' day? Well, we, uh, where, where are the Vikings now? Well, they're Lutherans now, <laughs> largely. Um, what happened to the Vikings? Yep. They were converted. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, this is one of the great stories that just needs telling and needs telling over and over and over again. You know, here, here is this, this vicious warlord kind of culture that rapes and pillages its, its way around Europe. And, and what happened to it? It was largely these tribes were converted to the way of the cross. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the most extraordinary picture. And, and all of that happened in those dark old days. Right. of the medieval period, <laughs> you know, and it's like, so it goes to show what a, what a PR battle we have ahead of us. The, the fact that the dark ages, the medieval period is thought of as just such a benighted bloodbath. And we, we celebrate Vikings. Well, you, you don't want to live in Viking society and you know, you don't want to live in Viking society. Nobody actually does. Uh, you know, may, maybe at like a 17 year old kind of for, for 18 months, they, they go through that phase and they read a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche and they get into Thor and they, and they kind of want to go back to some kind of pre-Christian, non-Christian culture. Yeah. They grow out of that pretty quickly. You, you don't, want to live in viking culture well praise god you don't and you know why you don't because people converted vikings to the way of the cross in which violence is utterly subverted in which the god of heaven suffers that violence and turns the other cheek and gives us peace instead Mm. and christendom pacified as violent a continent as there there has ever been on the planet Mm -hmm. and here here again is another triumph of, of Christianity that's that needs to be uncovered and the and the story needs to be told. But um, yeah, why why don't we have Vikings anymore? The gospel triumphed. Well, and Glenn, we we uh, were joking a minute ago about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and this is an insight from one guest we've had on the show uh, before, Chris Wiley. He has his own podcast, but I, I like to bring up in in company just you know to see the reactions, the fact that the Thor movies. And, you know, you might have some Christians that, that don't want to watch those and maybe we're, you know, averse to the idea of there being other gods. Of course, those sorts of things all apply. Uh, but I, I like to just throw out the idea, well, Thor's a Christian superhero. And, and, of course, people don't understand that. But think of the pagan Norse god Thor, right, and and <laughs> all that he stood for didn't stand for, right, you know, revelry and, and raw power, those those sorts of things that you would associate with that culture, with that religion. Contrast it with the Marvel cleaned up version of Thor is a son sent by a father on a mission who has to learn humility by losing his power, right? There's right. a, there's a kenosis that totally. happens, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? Um, and then finally at the end of it, 
he's vindicated, he's exalted, and he gets yeah. the girl. That is a Christianizing of the of the ancient myth, right? Even to the point where, well, they're not really gods; they're just they live they're aliens that live a long time, right? They're they're godlike, and and so it really is the air that we breathe in so many ways. And and I think we've got to get out of this idea that comes from kind of the dark underside of of Christian fundamentalism in the negative sense, especially in the U.S., where we're so afraid of anything that smacks of of something supernatural, or or maybe we're we're so insistent. Uh, on the things that we believe and hold as evangelicals, as Protestants, that well, if it's if it's before 1500, if it's mm. before Martin Luther, I don't even want to think about it. And, and in reality, the Holy Spirit was active in the medieval period, mm. doing things in history, even though the church was flawed then, as the f- church is still flawed yes. now. But let's shift from Europe, if you don't mind, to a different part of the world, to India. Uh, one of Scott and I's favorite guests that we've had on early in the show. So we're talking probably five years ago now. Uh, was Vishal Mangawadi, who's written multiple books on similar themes to what you've written. Uh, And he talks about how William Carey, who's someone that we've talked about on the show plenty of times, is responsible in some ways for the modern state of India. Why? Because he brought not only the gospel, but also with it, the Christian assumption that there's such a thing as progress in history towards a goal. And there can be such a thing as, as this civilizing effect as people's hearts are changed, right? And yeah, we don't see a Christian India today, but you don't have somebody a social reformer like Gandhi without some of those assumptions building their way into the Indian psyche. Is that the kind of thing that you would see happen in a place like that? Do you see that having happened other places historically because of the effect of missions? I love Vishal Mangalwadi as well. He, he was one of the big influences on my book. I think it was Tom Holland, a historian, who said, he was quoting somebody else when, when they said, Christianization of the world goes forward by, via two means, uh, conversion and secularization. And what he means uh, in terms of that secularization is that obviously um, the idea of the secular is a profoundly Christian idea. <laughs> okay, it's as as the BJP in India is teaching us, you know, as Erdogan in Turkey is teaching us, the idea of a secular Turkey or a secular India is not natural. It's not natural to the Hindu mindset. It's not natural to the Muslim mindset. If I could just cut in real quick, too, the word secular comes from the Latin seculum, which just means the, this age, yeah. basically, right? We're not, it doesn't mean atheistic. Right. People think it means atheistic. <laughs> it just refers to really the fact that we live in this present age, you know, between the already and the not yet waiting for Christ to come. And so what are we supposed to do in this age? And there's certain pursuits that we're supposed to do all these things for the glory of God. I mean, that's really the historic root of the idea of secularism, if I'm following your train of thought. Yeah, and what a gift to the, to the world! You, you you start with Christ saying, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God, God's." And and Augustine picks that up, and he's got the city of God and the city of man, and he sort of plants those seeds from Matthew's gospel into the heart of those dark old days called the Dark Ages, the medieval period, mm-hmm. and it comes to a spectacular bloom in the 11th, 12th century with the canon lawyers in, in medieval Christendom that, that come up with these developed theories about the seculum and the sacred, right? And and it's a wonderful gift to the world because what it says is you don't have to propitiate the gods <laughs> like mm-hmm. like Monday to Friday. You, you, like you don't, you don't have to go and burn incense to that god or offer a little, you know, offering at this temple or pray to the, the river god or... Christ, by his once-for-all sacrifice, 
has cleansed the world of of evil and it is it is a fit place for a christian to be and to live a holy life because we all we need is the holy spirit within us we we don't need the religious rituals to constantly cleanse us and we don't need to abstain from this world we've been given the holy spirit to sanctify us and that that sends us out into the into the secular mm. world to enjoy it and steward it and have dominion over it and and the, so this this idea of the secular is a beautifully Christian idea that has deep gospel roots. And it was brought to India and it was brought to Turkey. It was kind of forced on Turkey in in, in many ways. And what we are seeing, both in India and in Turkey, are political forces that are saying, this is just a Western thing. If you know, and and so well, it doesn't work without Christianity, just like right. democracy didn't work in Afghanistan without Christianity, because it right. turns out you need a church, you need the sacred in order to have a secular. I think that's right, and and we're seeing that we're seeing the truth of the beauty of the gift of the secular in photo negative. When when you see something like the BJP basically saying, "If you're going to be Indian, you must be Hindu," mm. and mm-hmm. and of course that was the case because as the British Raj kind of moved into India, they you know, they had to tell those, you know, inhabitants of Hindustan that they had a religion because <laughs> the, the, right, they right, were like, right. a what? Yeah. <laughs> What's a religion? Yeah. A, re- yeah. a religion is a Christian yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. The secular is yeah, a Christian yeah. idea. We, we spoke about paganism. Paganism, again, is a Christian idea. The yes. secular is a Christian idea. <laughs> um, religion is a Christian idea. And every, everyone... Oh, to be an atheist, to, <laughs> to use these terms and not borrow capital from the Christian worldview. You can't. You no, can't. You can't. <laughs> no, you absolutely can't. And that, again, is really helpful about bringing us out of our Western assumptions and, you know, putting us in a different atmosphere, breathing different kinds of air. And you see how peculiar we are. We see what a peculiar revolution the Christian revolution is. When you understand that if you were just, if you were in 1700 living around the river Ganges, like you didn't think of yourself as having a religion or of needing a secular ruler over you. Of course you had, you had priests and temples and and holy places and, and that kind of thing, but that was just woven into the warp and woof of life. And it was just mm. it was just part of being a good you know member of that society, and right. in in modern terms, the BJP is kind of kind of saying, well, yeah, that is what it is to be an Indian is to be a member of you know Hindustan. You're you're a Hindu, of course, and if you're not, if you're a Muslim or if you're a Christian or an, another religious minority, then look out. And I think we're starting to see what a what a beautiful gift the secular is as it's being taken away from different places. So, what does progress look like when Christianity is removed from the picture oh man well hmm. you know you've got that practice of, of sooty i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly but the 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 widow being mm-hmm. burnt on the funeral pyre of her husband there's that famous mm-hmm. story of a british general being taken quick quick there's a woman about to be you know burned on the on the funeral pyre and all the people in the village were saying well this this is just our religion this is just this is part of our cultural practice Mm. And the, you know, famously, the British general says, well, in our, in our you know, culture, anyone who burns alive a, a woman gets hung. So why don't we both act according to our cultural practices? You know, if you, if you want to burn her, <laughs> I've got the gallows. And, uh, yes. and so what, what does progress look like? I, I think it's, it's hard to find someone who doesn't think it's progress to stop the burning of widows. But mm. then how is that not cultural imperialism? 
Well, it, right. it turns out we've all got values and it turns out there's always a highest value and everybody's always assuming something to be God. And I, I guess with the compare and contrast, you just want to say, look at Jesus again, because in him you have a God unlike any other. Yeah, it's so so powerful. And we can apply that to almost every one of these, you know, one of these problems. And that's that that kind of leads to this next question uh, about defensiveness. You know, I mean, the Bay Area, I feel, is pretty similar to to London, you know, in the sense that it's very post-Christian, but then also not just post-Christian, but also influenced by huge influxes of of immigrants from non-Christian parts of the world. You know, so we've got large Afghan community. We've got a very large Pakistani community. We have a large Hindu community. We've got a lot of Chinese immigrants and just people from all over the world that have never been Christian before. And so there's a defensiveness, you know, there may be a feeling of, of Christianity being on its heels. You know, my, my kids in school will often be the only Christian in their classes. So should Christians be on the defensive about Christianity, especially in light of all the scandals that come out? You know, it seems like every week we can see a scandal or or negative episodes in history. I know you talk about the Crusades or you talk about mm. slavery, particularly uh, in England and America, or do even those events point somehow to the truth of Christ? Yeah. So wh- whatever critiques are thrown at the church, it's it's so interesting to think by what standard are the critiques being made? I right. mentioned the seven values in my book, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. I think one way that you see that those are ultimate values is just by reversing them. What do you say mm-hmm. of something that is unequal? What do you say of something that is not compassionate, but cruel, not consensual, but coercive, not enlightened, but unenlightened, not scientific, mm-hmm. but anti-science, not about freedom, but about restriction, not about progress, but about being regressive. You know, if, if something is unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive and regressive, that's the worst. Why is that the worst? only because those values are the best. Well, where, where do those values come from? They come from Christianity. But isn't it ironic that when you, when you talk about something that is unenlightened and unequal and cruel and coercive and regressive, the number one thing people sort of apply those epithets to is Christianity. What's going on? Well, I guess, I guess we are children of the revolution and children always mock their parents. They always do. And they, <laughs> you know, you, you look back at the photographs of, you know, your, your parents when they met and you, you say, were those haircuts ever in fashion? Um, what were you thinking? And mm. more seriously, you, you, you look back at the failures of your forebears and you, you ask yourself, you know, could they ever have, have lived like, like that? But whenever you're bringing critique you're always using a standard. And so, okay, let's take the Crusades that you just mentioned. I, I go into the Crusades a little bit in the book. What do you call the Crusades when done under any other standard, under any other mm. banner? If you are mm-hmm. fighting to reclaim Jerusalem from those who invaded it, right. after 450 years of occupation by the Muslim armies, the Christians went to boot the the Muslim armies out of Jerusalem. Now, I actually think the Crusades were unconscionable in their prosecution, how they went about it. I mean, there there were practice pogroms on Jewish communities on the way to Jerusalem. There was unconscionable evil in the way. Butchering of other Christians on the way. Yeah, butchering of other Christians on the way. Yeah. And of course, the whole time, the reason why we call them Crusaders is it's sort of Latin for cross-bearer. They are those who take up their cross. 
And so the perversity of the Crusades is that they take something that is a symbol of dying for your enemy and they mm-hmm. take it to mean killing your enemy. And, and of course, that is an inversion of the meaning of the cross. And it, it is grotesque. It is abhorrent. It is unconscionable to wage the Crusades under the banner of the cross. But if you wage that same campaign under the banner of a Muhammad or an Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, what do you call such a campaign? You call it business as usual. Mm. And so once, once again, you know, the, the, the purpose is not to say, oh, the Crusades weren't that bad actually. The purpose is to say, yeah, they were really bad, but by what standard were they bad? And why do we think that we should love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us? Why do we think that we should mm-hmm. put away the sword because those who live by the sword will die by the sword? Where, where do we get these ideas from? And at that stage, you want to own the, the critique of the church. You want to join forces with the person making the critique of the church. Right. You want to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And you might even want to say, it's even worse than you think. Let me point out this <laughs> evil, this evil, and this evil. But as we're pointing out these evils, we are basically, by pointing out the evil, we're, we're in an inverse way pointing out what mm. is good. And we know mm. that we should progress mm. our aims, not by violence, but by persuasion and all these sorts of things. So my, my tactic always through the book is to raise these objections to Christianity, to, to strengthen them at times, but then to say, by what standard are we making these judgments? And I think, right. I think even the, mm. the critics of Christianity are using very Christian standards. Glenn, there's so much there that could be unpacked, you know, endlessly, right? I mean, there's, there's 2,000 years of post-Christ Western history that could be referred to, and we've gotten into a lot of that. Now, we don't want to judge an apologetic methodology by practical, measurable things in the immediate short term. That's not what we're seeking to do. We want to be faithful to Christ above all else. Uh, but I am curious, as you take this message to secularists in the West, or even see people in a non-Christianized culture interacting with this type of thinking, have you seen some of the scales fall off? Or have you seen a lot of, well, that's interesting, but no, really, Christianity is repressive, and my view of progress or my view of equality is the correct view. What, what has been your experience? What can people expect in their own interactions as they study more and then try and take this into the marketplace? I think a, a number of different things. One is it has so moved the conversation on from the new atheist blip that we had. We thought that the, the new atheist blip was forever. But I think we're, we're, we're noticing now that the values that we hold are not derivable scientifically, actually. That mm. we orient our lives according to a, a whole bunch of presuppositions, assumptions, moral intuitions that cannot be demonstrated scientifically or, or it's not the punchline to a philosophical argument. It's that they are gut instincts that we have. And I think mm-hmm. on an intellectual mm-hmm. basis, there's very little pushback to the idea, and I don't think there can be much pushback to the idea, that these gut instincts have come from Christianity. And I, and I think a, a number of different secular authors as well as Christians are, are continuing to point this out. So it's becoming so much easier for me to convince my secular friends that they have faith that they are people mm. whose lives are oriented by higher ideals that cannot be justified scientifically, mathematically, um, logically. My friends used to say to me that they could never be people of faith and they, they are not people of faith. But far more, they are, they are saying to me, okay, 
I do have faith in compassion and equality and consent and, and these things. And it's a privilege to be able to introduce where those ideas come from. And my, my hope is that as they pull at those threads, they come to see the person who embodies those values. Because the other thing I'm able to point out apologetically is just what happens in a society when those values are made ultimate. And when values are made ultimate, it becomes incredibly judgmental. And far from us becoming a much more licentious culture in walking away from organized religion, uh, we've become incredibly preachy, haven't we? We're, we're not permissive, we're preachy now. <laughs> yes. And people are noticing that because when you don't have, when, when it's not Christ who is your highest ideal, but rather values, well, you can only fail values. Values can only judge you. If you want forgiveness, you need a person. <laughs> only a person can forgive you. You, you need the, the living Christ who embodies those values and, and forgives you when, when you fail them. And, and I'm seeing that as being uh, in, incredibly fruitful. I think we, we've got generations of people who are just so afraid of being canceled, so afraid of just saying the wrong thing, of holding the wrong views. The idea of mercy, compassion, the idea of forgiveness is just so refreshing for people to, to hear of. And, and I think at an intellectual level, we're, we're seeing lots of people take incredibly interesting journeys, certainly towards church going, whether they end up, you know, fully fledged, signed up uh, believers in the Lord Jesus, we, we will see. But, you know, the, the kind of the path from a Tom Holland into church is, is actually a, a very short one. And I've seen many, many people take that path. Mm. So, yeah, it's hopeful, I think. That's great. Well, how can people find out more about you, your other books, connect with, with Speak Life? Um, how can people get more of the things you've done and where can they find your book? Sure. Um, you can catch up with me on Twitter uh, at Glenn Scrivener, Glenn with a single N, and you can catch up with Speak Life, uh, speaklife.org.uk. Very good. Thank you, Glenn. I encourage people to check out the book, follow him on Twitter, follow the ministry as well, because we think that there's a lot here. I mean, just read old books, study, read this book, but expose yourself to these ideas. We live in a, dare I say, Christian world. Uh, mm-hmm. Not as Christian as it needs to be, but more Christian than it would have been 2,000 years ago, or even 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, right? The, the Great Commission is happening, and it's bearing fruit. We ought to rejoice even in the dark days that we live in. So thank you for watching or listening to the Missions Podcast. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. To get more from ABWE, go to abwe.org and get more of this show at missionspodcast.com. If you believe in the show, you can support us and partner with us at missionspodcast.com slash support. Of course, do all the other fun podcast things too, sharing, telling a friend, and leaving a positive rating and review. And you can direct any questions that you have, any questions for Glenn, as well as ideas for future shows to alex at missionspodcast.com. We love hearing from you. And so until next week's show, thanks for watching or listening to the Missions Podcast.